the distance. Is that... Is that a podcast? It sure as hell is. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we mercilessly interrogate films previously described by other flyboys as masterpieces. I am Nick and I am joined as ever by Rocket Roger. Hello. And today we're donning our aviator shades and battered leather jackets, though not the ones we talked about in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we are by uh, Per Ardua as Astra as we delve deeply into The Right Stuff, um, the 1983 film by Philip Kaufman. Kaufman? I'd assume Kaufman, I don't know. Which, uh, a story of test pilots in general and the Mercury 7 astronauts in particular, maybe... Um, we'll come on to that. Um, well, there we are. I guess that is the plot summary of it, really. We we follow the early days of the test program from uh, immediately after the Second World War through to the the final Mercury 7 flights um, before, those of you less familiar with the space program, before the Gemini program, which then morphed into the more famous Apollo program, which landed men, real rugged manly men on the moon. I think it would be fair to say that the Mercury program was the, uh oh, it's, it's the fifties, it's the early sixties, and the Soviets seem to be doing this space thing, and we are frankly not. Yes, uh, which, the which catch is, up program. so you, you get things like, right, well, one of the uh, project designations was Miss for Man in Space Soonest. Yes, that's right. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. Um, so th- this is why they do the suborbital flight first, even though Gagarin had had been in orbit, because they just really had no idea what was viable, what wasn't. Well, this comes uh, uh, with a backdrop, which is uh, alluded to, well, not alluded to, shown in the film of uh, American rockets not going terribly well for quite some time. We'll we'll come back to that. Well, it talks a lot about the Atlas rocket. I think a lot of the Mercury stuff was on a Redstone rocket. Uh, yeah, the, it's the Redstone first stage, which I think they'd modified slightly. I think they designated the Jupiter C. I mean, we're basically talking ICBM boosters here. Which, I mean, we should point out, Roger and I aren't space nerds. Roger's much better at retaining facts than I am, but we both love the space program. Um, yeah, I, I, I was a space nerd as a kid, so... Mm. Yeah, well, we'll come back to that. I didn't see this at the time. Um well, we'll try and avoid delving too deeply into nerdery if we can. Or yeah, at least right. we'll do it. <laughs> sure, we will. We'll do it. I've got some we'll notes for Roger's Aviation Corner later. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't the whole podcast Roger's Aviation Corner? Well, I mean, um, there aren't any guns in this one. Well, anyway, so the, this... the, the first thing I notice, yes. and this is possibly not a, the best thing to notice, first of all, is how long is this? 192 yeah. minutes. Yeah, it's a long... F- I will point out, I mean, we were talking out of um, off-air, as we say, uh, about... Because um, I have watched The Right Stuff, the recent uh, and recently cancelled Disney Plus um, entire TV show mm-hmm. about the Mercury 7 astronauts. Um, this, uh, uh, remarkably, so that's like six, maybe ten, one hours long. Mm-hmm. This film actually covers... More ground. I thought it was a sequel, um, but no, it actually covers more ground and more time than that whole TV show. So it is quite an, a historical epic, um, I suppose, in that sense. Historical, maybe, in inverted quotes, <laughs> in but it, but it is um, 
It is an epic. It is a long film. And it seems to have started the precedent for doing long historical mm. films a la Titanic and that sort of thing and, and making them shiny and sexy in a, in a not fusty, boring, this is history kind of way. Yeah, I think it was Titanic that, that was advertised as being um, some number of hours and 76 minutes so that people wouldn't think it was a larger number of hours long film. <laughs> but that um, would that would have filled me. <laughs> sadly enough. Looking at the origins of this, I mean, obviously it's based on on the seventy nine book uh, by Tom Wolfe. By Tom Wolfe, also called the Right Stuff, which I have not read. I'm not no. really a fan of his writing style in general. Uh, that was originally going to be a history of the entire space program to that point. You know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. Mm. But he got so tied up with the Mercury stuff and the stuff he wanted to write about that it ended up essentially just being that. Well, it's fair to, again, I've not delved into the history too much, but I get the impression that he, Tom Wolfe, and maybe to a greater extent, Philip, I'm going to call him Kaufman, um, and probably will alternate between Kaufman and Kaufman throughout the podcast, um, got so fixated on the idea of the test pilots as the real heroes, the ones who took all the risks for no pay, for very crappy pay, and for no none of the limelight compared to the astronauts. And and that is, you know, the whole film seems to be a juxtaposition of, of mm. the the kind of glory hound astronauts and the uh, the working Joe, but with the right stuff, test pilots, um, well, I, I've I got a theory on, on why, why it went got... that way. Okay, well, um, I, I suppose my theory was that Tom Wolfe Tom Wolf, Tom Wolf started talking to the test pilots and just kind of fell in love with them. Well, specifically, I mean... believed all their, <laughs> their stuff. Well, as, as I understand it, um, Wolfe was starting off going with a lot of documentation because mm. um, obviously there was a lot and it was mostly fairly public, yes. if, if not immediately easy to get access to. And a lot of this was accident reports, which he just didn't have the technical background to understand. Right. So he went to look for somebody who could help explain this stuff to, and and he found Jaeger, and Jaeger basically brought him up to speed. And I think inevitably, without any malice on anybody's part, he took on a lot of Jaeger's attitude from that because he was learning from such a very low starting point. <coughs> Yes. About how flying works and about what you need to do and so on. And obviously Jaeger's got his own views on that, which are, yes. which are going to be conveyed. Yeah, you know, just as any, any teacher can give you the way they feel about a subject. Well, and I, uh, to clarify what those views seem to be sort of here and in the film is that, again, without any amount, Jaeger has no, he has in the film, and I think in real life, up until he died only last year, actually, um, had no uh, kind of malice. In fact, he felt the astronauts were incredibly brave for doing what they're doing. But he also felt it was a kind of a zero-skilled job. You know, you're just you're basically what's he call it? Spat ham in a can or spam in a can or something like that. You basically yeah. you just get fired up into space and well, come back down again. That that is, I think, the core conflict of the film. And one of the reasons I think the film is weak is that it says, here is this conflict, here are these pilots who want to be pilots, and yeah. here, are, here are the people actually designing the vehicles who basically, they've been told to have a 70-kilo payload rather than a 30-kilo payload chimpanzee. Yeah. And, yeah, they, they don't really agree. I didn't feel there was any real argument one way or the other. You know, they're saying, I feel like this. 
Yeah. But, and, and never really any resolution other than, well, we need the PR, so we got these guys. Well, I suppose to me, if we come on to one of the weaknesses of the film, uh, I, I agree that, you know, a lot of it seems to be, you know, uh, Jaeger is, I'm going to, I'm going to say hero. Well, I mean, he is, he, he was an incredibly skilled, incredibly brave man. He had an incredible war record. He genuinely did shoot down five, six. Well, I didn't shoot them down because two of them crashed into each other, but six Germans in one day. And got uh, the, the rules are if you, if you fired your gun, it counts as a shoot down. Okay, so he did, he did get it, and he was an incredibly skilled pilot, um, and did not, I, I think probably until the right stuff didn't really get any kind of recognition, or the kind of recognition uh, that perhaps he was deserved. But, um, I, as you mentioned, one of the conflicts is between the engineers and the astronauts. But the engineers in the right stuff are so comically weak and underserved you know Werner von Braun I don't think he's even he's clearly in it but he, I don't think he's mentioned by name um, yeah he he as I understand it the the very heavily German accented guy is is largely inspired by von Braun and the others who yes. worked with him but, but he's not they, they're not claiming this is what he actually said he, I mean even insofar as it's a film version of a book version of real events, that they're not saying von Braun did this; they're just saying the scientists, the engineers, did this. Yeah, and I feel it it creates such a kind of a weak uh, villain almost in the shape of the engineers that that whole conflict is, you know, basically it's done over in one scene. They see the Mercury capsule, they're like, "Where's the window?" Where's the steering wheel? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And the, and the press is just, just over there. Do you want us to tell them how we feel about this? Exactly, and that's it. That's that's done. And it's, I mean, that scene has a a lot of nuggets of truth in it. But you know, the I I, I don't know. For me, the whole film it, it, it's the weirdly co um, you know, condensed highlight summary version. Yes, which in a three-hour film is not what I expect. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I mean, I feel there's a load of tension to be wrung out of the, the very real tension between the astronauts and the engineers. But also, I wanted a strong engineer advocate there because I know the German rocket scientists, and Werner von Braun in particular, lent their expertise. But, you know, a lot of the engineers were, and not that it matters of their nationality, but they weren't all snivelling Nazis as they are slightly portrayed in this film. You know, there's mm. a lot of. The one guy standing of... for everything, I, I think, is it, it's odd because uh, he and um, the guy who's only credited as head of program, uh, the the guy who's essentially running all the PR efforts, and yes, is also is also unnamed. I mean, yeah, there there are real people that he could be loosely based on, but he's he's not a credited character. Which loses a lot of the tension because basically, then you just have these kind of grinning young. Guys, kind of high fiving each other as they they own the astronauts and they own the PR guys because they do what they like. And I, I know, I know it's slightly. I was I was a little surprised to read that this was considered a very satirical version of it, and that it was actually uh, dared to be puncturing the illusion of what we thought of as the astronauts. I, um, I wonder how much of that is of its time because I, I think it is because nowadays. Uh, he, 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 we, we have this, um, concept of, of masterpiece, among other things, as something that's been influential. And I think that the portrayal here has become so much a part of the way people think of early space flight. Yes. That it now feels cliched. I don't think it was at the time. 
Well, I mean, look, we could talk about, I don't we often reserve influences at the end, but I mean, this, as you pointed out off air, you know, the, the Chuck Yeager character here is Maverick in Top Gun. I mean, it's just the That same was the character. thing I felt very strongly, particularly yeah. when, when the, you know, uh, the, 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 um, homosocial conversation in the bar, which happened several times. Uh, <laughs> yes. These are the people that Top Gun is, is um, very clearly inspired by. I mean, yeah, all oh, right, yeah, a lot yeah. of pilots talk that way, particularly fighter pilots, but it, it felt like a very direct um, influence. It's, it's a lift. And, and again, in real life, apparently, Chuck Yeager had an influence on a lot of pilots. Mm. Um I, the, the thing, uh, but it's it's slightly old, actually. Given that, I mean, if have you heard recordings of test pilots, particularly during mishaps? There, there are there are some out there. Uh, the, yes. And what, I, what I you have. generally get is the extremely calm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, e- even though you know this aircraft is disintegrating and I may be about to die, they will stay absolutely calm and they are set. They are giving you all the data they can so that the next guy can. And that that is a thing that. Is very rarely portrayed in film about pilots, astronauts, and so on. I guess that's right. Well, yeah, because uh, you know, having listened to some of those recordings, they're actually a bit dull to actually listen to. Yeah, because you wouldn't know. Well, I mean, one classic example of that is the Apollo Eleven moon landing with Neil Armstrong. You know, mm. they, they are about to run out of fuel. He can't land where he's supposed to because of all the rocks. They may be slightly debatable. But, you know, if you just listen to his voice, you wouldn't know anything. You know, they have an alarm flashed up. Never come up before. They're, a, they're about to land on the moon. They don't know what it means, but they're just like, 12.02 alarm. You check on that. And, you know, the closest is a you get is a slight urgency in Buzz Aldrin's voice when he repeats 12.02 alarm. And that is about the most <laughs> excitement in the whole... Unless you have to have someone talk you through minute by minute, which I should recommend listening to 13 Minutes to the Moon by the BBC, which basically does talk you through the the final Apollo landing. Mm-hmm. But I but I agree, these are very... But that's... Um, uh, that, actually, that brings me on to another point, that this film is very... Ah, it is absolutely in love with the test pilots, and Chuck Yeager in particular. Look, there mean, is no God but Yeager, and John Glenn is his prophet. <laughs> but it's almost a little disdainful of the astronauts. Um, well, that, that's, least... that's the thing. I mean, it, it's showing this tension. But uh, as, as I see it, there are basically two two situations depicted in the film where having a human on board a Mercury uh, unit actually made, makes a difference, potentially. Yes. One is Grissom's flight and, and the hatch release. Which is... I want to I want to dig into that a bit because that, okay. that greatly gave Gus Grissom a disservice. We can come on. back to that, but okay. I think we can say just just here that the film is not saying that he that he improved matters. No, and the the other is um, Glenn's landing bag alarm, where and, and that is... again, I mean, he's not he's not shown as doing anything terribly interesting they couldn't have done with the, with the um, remote control whereas in reality again correct me if i'm wrong the fact that john glenn uh managed to manually reposition it um was was then from then on strongly used as people as a proponent of why you need manned spaceflight and why they need to be able to pilot their ships properly yeah because... but but they didn't lose telemetry except during the ionization window when he couldn't do anything anyway so no. there is no reason to suppose that a remote control operation couldn't have done the same thing. 
Yes, I mean, those, right. ca- those, those, those vehicles were fully remote controllable in case something, something unexpected happened and the astronaut died. So. And I guess you would, um, the pilots would argue, you know, there's, there's one thing remote controlling is another thing being up there, feeling sure. it. But that's, you know, but, something we're not going to get. But the, to these are the two know. places where the film gets a chance to make its case. And I don't yeah. think it makes that case. That, that's the key point rather than the actual validity. What case do you think it's trying to make? I don't think it's making are... a case at all. That's, that's the, that's the weird thing. Well, that, yeah, I think that's why I asked because I, if it's not trying to make the case that they were just Kansas spam and they weren't necessary, if it's not trying to make that case, then what is all this fucking hero worship of Chuck Yeager about? I don't know what he's, <laughs> I mean, they, uh, they were heroic as well in their own. I, I don't want to disparage anyone. That it takes an extremely much braver than I and much more skilled person than I to do any of the things depicted in the film. Uh, but I wasn't. I wasn't really sure quite what it was getting at. I, what I got from it is that exactly as you said, basically that 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 Chuck Yeager is is pilot Jesus, um, and everyone else was like a, a, a crappy reflection of him, and they all wanted to be him. And I, Which may have been true to some extent. Yeah, but, but I don't know quite what that. That to me is not. That is not an interesting thing to me with regards to the space program. I'm sorry to say, I I, I find yeah. the astronauts fascinating, but I find the engineering and the the mountain of people below the astronauts just as interesting as the introduction mm. and the conflict between them well can we move on to gus grissom then well because... just before we get there the, okay. there's a bit of the genesis of the film i'd, I'd like to talk about because i think it may, okay. it may be informative here uh the original uh screenwriter was going to be william goldman ah uh, yes of the princess bride fame. well late uh later but yeah. uh but you know at this point he, he'd written butch cassidy and the sundance kids all the president's mm-hmm. men um he he was you know a, a reasonably respected screenwriter. He he was thrown off the project by Kaufman for basically two reasons, as far as I can see. Um, he had cut out the, what we might call the Jaeger frame story to concentrate yes. on the actual astronauts. He'd done a Jaeger bomb, as and you might say. inspired by um, Ray, Reagan waving his genitalia about over Iran, uh, he'd made it more explicitly jingoistic, which Kaufman didn't want. Which is, you know, yes. fair, fair enough. And it's, 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 yes, it's not jingoistic, particularly. Now, he, he says in Adventures in Screen Trade, uh, Kaufman's heart was with Jaeger. Not only that, he felt the astronauts, rather than being heroic, were really minor leaguers, mechanical men of no particular quality, not great pilots at all, simply the product of hype. I don't think the film puts it that strongly, but that's certainly no, what he felt I, Kaufman thought about. That's him. what Kaufman. Okay, so this is what William Golding thought that Kaufman felt about the astronaut. Yeah. And I would agree, I, I mean, maybe we are more ready to accept flawed heroes to some extent. So to me, there's nothing portrayed in the film that makes me think the astronauts are less, less brave or less heroic or, I, well, I, I, I wonder if that was controversial at the time. Because the, the astronauts out, themselves mostly loved the book but hated the film. Really, uh, and, and they, they felt the the film okay. was showing you know the easy stuff. You know, yeah, here, here here we are, bit being bros, um, you know, asking around, that kind of stuff. Not the the work they actually had to do. Yeah, as as far as the film's concerned, they are mostly just sitting there, and they they felt that they were doing a lot more than just sitting there. 
Oh, but it sort of implied wrongly as well that Chuck Yeager just, you know, oh, he loved I'm the gonna film. Take, I'm going to, I'm sure he did. <laughs> I'm sure he did. But you know, it's um, particularly you know the final scene with the plane that I'm sure you'll remember the name of that he survives that, that you know the jet plane that he tries to fly up into space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just implies that he was just like. Uh, uh, well, we could talk about that. But it just sort of implies that he's like, oh, I'm just going to take this baby up, see what she can do. No, no that was an actual scheduled test flight. You know, mm-hmm. this was, and I don't think it was even his first one in that plane. Yeah. It, it just makes him look effort, effortlessly cool. But it doesn't really, to yeah, me... Yeah, this, this is, make... reminds me of the reaction I had from a um, cu- couple of uh, ex-US Navy people um, when, when the subject came around to Top Gun. Which was basically, okay, so this film basically ends after the first unauthorised Buzz the Tower, because he is out of the Navy before he's even landed. <laughs> if he takes too long to land, they'll shoot him down, you know? Yes. Um, I, I didn't feel like it made the astronauts look like chumps, but maybe that's, maybe that's me. But, I mean, it, they, it, they're it, human. It works really hard work. on making them relatable. Yes. And it doesn't work really hard on making them anything else. Well, that's it. I, yeah, I didn't really... That, so the one time, I suppose, it really... The one astronaut it really kind of, in my mind, dumps on is Gus Grissom. You know, mm. he's 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 repeatedly shown as kind of a sweary, less... I don't want to say less intelligent, but he certainly has less technical things to contribute. That is not... That is not the reality of Gus Grissom. Mm. Um, also, you know, if you were going to do... It makes a bit of a, a little bit of a thing about the exploding hatch. Now, I suppose if you wanted to do something with Gus Grissom, you could have played up the fact he basically hatches blighted his career one way or the other. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, they either uh, wrecked his Mercury Seven flight or, or blighted it, and then ended up killing him. You know, in the end, but it doesn't. It doesn't even mention that really. Um, it, it gets a very brief mention, uh, and we should mention Gus Grissom. Well, okay. So Gus Grissom in this film is portrayed as kind of panicking as he mm. lands in the Mercury Seven flight, um, and that, that's and, something really invented for the film. Even the book just yes. mentions that it was considered as a possibility that he might have done this, but it wasn't taken seriously even at the time. Whereas the film, uh, so he lands in the the uh, uh, the Pacific. Is it the Pacific or the Atlantic? It must be the Pacific. I don't, uh, don't remember that. He lands in the sea, um, and it cuts away to the crucial moment. So you don't know whether he accidentally fired the hatch or not. But the hatch blows before it's supposed to. The Mercury Seven, the the Liberty, is it the Liberty Bell? That one that sinks. No, that was um, Shepard. But anyway, uh, but uh, the ship sinks. Um, it was the Taco Bell. I'm kidding. Um, uh, the the ship sinks, and he's uh, hoisted out. Um, but the the kind of final word on that from the film is Gus Grissom says that. I never did it. I didn't blow the hatch. I definitely didn't blow the hatch. In a, you know, unconvincing way. And then as he leaves the room, the unnamed technician, scientist, engineer says, that's never happened in 200 flight, 200. Mm-hmm. In all the explosive hatch things we've ever had, that has never once happened ever. What one well, does feel... that's not true for us. <laughs> well, one does feel that if that had been the actual attitude of, um, well, it's, okay, it is NASA at this point, management towards him, he would not have had command of the first Gemini flight and he would not have had command of the first Apollo flight. 
Exactly. They rehired <laughs> so... him. They rehired him. They they trusted him and they believed him. It doesn't get... And, but that, to me, if you're going to play up the drama of that, then, of course, there's more drama later on when, is it, is it Wally Shira in one of the Mercury missions deliberately blows the hatch once he's landed on the... Um, I think it was Wally Shira deliberately blows the hatch once he's put back in the battleship to show that if you do that, it really buggers your hand up, that you get a deep bruise and a cut. Mm-hmm. And he was doing that to prove... His friend, Gus Grissom, who he absolutely believed did not blow that hatch. Yeah. None of that comes across in the film because they all, they all say, oh, you screwed the pooch. And he admits he screwed. To me, I don't know, because I know a bit about the real story. That's a more interesting story that he was trying to clear his friend's name. Mm. Um, and also then, why not play up the fact a bit that I thought, because they made it, there's a bit earlier on where he says, and this is where you put the explosive hatch. And I thought, oh, hatches, that's going to be Gus Grissom's thing, which I suppose is fair enough. But of course, in the uh, the awful Apollo 1 fire, when there is a fire in the rarefied oxygen, they can't open the hatch because it's not explosive. Um, well, it's a great, greater internal than external pressure of the hatch that opens inwards, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't... Or was it the other way around? Brilliant. Anyway. Uh, either way, the hatch seals itself in and, and the men all die in there. Um and I thought that was pretty shabby. I don't know. The portrayal of Gus Grissom as kind of a panicky, uh, slightly lying coward. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't hear it worship Gus Grissom. I just feel, uh, as you say, uh, NASA hired him back for two more missions in two more programs. Um, he would have been one of the first to walk on the moon. I don't, sorry, I'm getting on my high horse there. I, I was offended by the portrayal of Gus Grissom yeah. in the film. Um, um, thank you. Also, uh, we, we've got that montage of all those rocket failures, mm. and I do feel one should note that of the six actual Mercury Redstones firing, five were successful, and the, and the other one, which was the first one, did not lead to a loss of vehicle. It was just a failure to fire. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, they was phenomenally. Once the Mercury program got started, uh, Mer- and not- Mercury Atlas that they transitioned to for the actual orbital flights, yeah, two vehicle losses out of nine. But again, nobody on board, no loss of life. Yeah, and these are tests. The point of a test is that it can fail. Then you change stuff. <laughs> I, 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 th- I, I think <laughs> just showing all the failures and suggesting that it's never actually worked, e and, until that one shot with Ham. Is, is a, it's, it's not lying, but it's, it's definitely making me, you, using the available information to make me think something that is not the case. Yeah, and I suppose we are, you know, it's a film and we understand we're in film land, but also this is another thing. We haven't really had a film on Ribbon of Memes before, save for Badlands that was based on a true story, but so loosely that, you know, Badlands, you could forgive it for not being accurate because it wasn't really trying to be. But this was out and out based on historical facts. You know, there were named characters who were real people, um, who were many of which were still alive at the time of the film. Um, Well, to be fair, Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't still alive. Um, Well, that's true. That's not very historically accurate either. but I don't know, that wasn't a historical epic. You know, this seems to be telling the story of those days. And to do that and get either gloss over a lot or get a lot wrong, I I felt that was a... I, to me personally, and this may be my own problem, if you're telling a true story, you... Well, I, my, my touchstone here would be Das Boats, which is mm. not a true story, 
but it's it's as true to life as it could possibly be for a fictional story. And that, again, that had us gripped and glued to our seats. And Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say me... I don't want every film to be Dust Boat, but I would actually be lying, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, you are not telling me there is not enough drama and interest in the history of the Mercury programme to or, bring or some for that matter, genuine... In the, it... Yeah, or for that matter, the, the early transonic test pilot stuff, which is really relegated to frame story. I mean, I wouldn't have minded watching a film about that, to be honest. About, yeah, exactly. I, I think you said again off air that you wouldn't have minded watching a film about Chuck Yeager. He is a fascinating character, but it's not really about Chuck Yeager. It's just, here is, I mean. Here's the I context the, out of which Mercury came. Yeah, here is, this is, this is the man who is the right, who has the right stuff. I'm starting to think the right stuff is just a full head of hair, honestly. But <laughs> <laughs> um, he has the right stuff. These astronauts don't. But it, even with that kind of premise of the film, it doesn't. It doesn't really double down on that. It doesn't really. Uh, to me, it didn't really mm. drive that point home either. So I, I was left. Again, I'm gonna. I keep pinching you off air, but you Ow. pretty much hit hit the nail on the head <laughs> um, when you said, "How do you make?" A topic like this that we were both we're both fascinated in. How do you make it a bit dull? Because uh, yeah, that's how I felt about it ultimately. Yeah, it's I beautiful. Mean, the, when when this came out, I, I was I was still a space obsessed kid. Um, I think, in retrospect, I'm I'm fairly glad I didn't see this at the time. Cause yeah. It would not have been a thing I enjoyed at all. I mean, yeah, this is 83, so we've had uh, the first space shuttle flight, um, but none, none of the vehicle losses has happened yet. And I have a whole rant about the space shuttle, which I actually lied for <laughs> podcasting purposes. But I mean, the space shuttle was not uh, not NASA's finest. Well, e- even finest it, even in 83, it was not looking like a triumph. It was a... It was a, uh, well, let's not get into it, but it was a colossal compromise which led to the loss of uh, 14 people, I believe. Um, but there we go. Let's not, let's not go down that route. Um, I, uh, I, the, the TV show, which I watched and enjoyed, makes much of the rivalry between John Glenn and Alan Shepard. I mean, that is mm-hmm. basically the central point of the show. So I was, Going into the film, I was sort of expecting that to be the central point of it. Maybe yeah, there, there are some moments of mild tension, but mostly it's very much saying we are a band of brothers. We are united against everybody else, including our own management. Yeah, which may well have been the the kind of mentality of the astronauts, but I don't, I don't think it was as simple as that. And I don't, they, yeah, I don't know. I, it didn't, but they even then it didn't really double down on that. I don't, I don't, I don't, it seemed to, exactly as you say, I mean, it's beautiful, it's very slick, and frankly, I enjoyed watching the film. I wish it had been shorter for what it was. And some of the I, flight I, footage is great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the effects... It, it's been every... It's, yeah, this, this stuff has been all over the place, I, either reused from this or new flight footage, and we're used to it now, but at the time it was not the sort of thing people were used to seeing at all. I, I remember being bowled over by the... I mean, they must be physical effects because they can't have been CGI. But, uh, you know, <laughs> to me, I couldn't see how they did a lot of them, which is fascinating because, you know, this is a real world space program that they are modeling. And it was very, very well done. Yeah. I, um, I mean, a lot of it must have been actual flight footage. Um, 
It was really well. So, I, yes, absolutely, I agree with that. Um, it. It does seem to me that it that it sometimes gets quite consciously arty, um, yes. like the the thing where they're sticking the needle in the hand and, and running their heart rates very high. We start right. in mid-test, and then that guy finishes and goes out, and the next guy comes in, and we don't see the beginning of the test. Or the guy running in to see the vice president and talk about the news from Russia three times. I that I mean that I don't was that supposed to be comedic because that felt I think so flat for me I I, I don't the, it's, it's like... the classic do it once do it twice and then the third time you do it differently yeah but it felt so obviously that it, I don't know and um, the other thing was that all that flying through the clouds it's yeah. very pretty but we are over the Mojave Desert here <laughs> are there really that many it was an there? utterly clear day every single day that's why they put the base there. <laughs> hadn't even noticed that that's a good point um you have reminded me to go back to the i i was sort of enjoying it as a semi-realistic film and then it had this yeah you have jeff goldblum running mm. into the the president's office and it suddenly becomes a uh pretty rubbish comedy movie for about 10 minutes because harry shearer famous from um spinal tap later on <laughs> um pops in uh and i <sighs> You know, you have that newsreel footage of, um, oh, well, we were thinking about um, uh, uh, high-rise um, uh, motorcycle driver, uh, stunt drivers, and they have their own helmets. I don't know if that is a factor. Now, it's frustrating because all those things were had a grain of truth. Every one of them, you know, they did consider all these Yeah, Armstrong ha- uh, said in, I think, 2009 uh, that there were various groups considered. Obviously, yes, and- that, that quote wasn't available then, but clearly that was a thing that was... In, in and it was, but I don't know. To me, it frustrated me that they put that truth into a sort of a slightly comedic routine, and mm. so it seemed like it wasn't true to me. It felt like yeah. oh, they just put that in for a joke. No, they actually consider that. And I mean, I, the, I the, the it, initial constraint was basically, can you take the G's of liftoff, which you know may, may be fifteen in in the early flights, uh, and can can you say something patriotic? Other than, <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to be sick. So. <laughs> yeah. um, the, yes. the the original ideas, uh, when they were just talking to the engineers, really did not involve anything you would call piloting. And, and I so, think it yeah. genuinely, I may be misremembered, I think it genuinely was Eisenhower, as in this film, that said, no, they should be test pilots. Mm-hmm. But I, that whole scene with um, the... Well, not that whole scene, that whole moment from then on for a little while until it just forgets them as characters with Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer to the point of them getting out of the car wearing the wrong jackets in a comedy way and going, oh, we've got the wrong jacket on and swapping them back or, over. Or puking off the side of the aircraft carrier. Or, or yeah. puking because they are, because they're clearly not real men with the right stuff and they, they, they can't stand being on an aircraft carrier for 30 seconds. Which are about the most, about as stable as ships get though. You know, I'm, I'm not saying you couldn't get seasick. <laughs> no, but yeah. I, I, the, to me, that was an ill judged, ill judged mm. comedy intrusion. That that was my feeling. I found I found it jarring. It was so because it it had gone from semi realistic, kind of I suppose you call it mythic realistic. Is that fair to say? I that think it was it's kind it's, of, it's trying for that at times, yeah. Uh, and then into this weird comedy routine. And then these characters who seem to be then maybe oh maybe these are the through line for the rest of the book. No, they dropped. You only ever see them again when they're running back into the president's office. It just uh, it felt like a weird tonal shift to me. Yeah, and. I noticed LBJ uh, because of the thing. 
we had a couple of thing alumni because Don, also... Donald Moffat as Commander Gary, and I, I felt, you know, having seen that, yeah, I knew that it wasn't just being him being a rubbish actor here. He he was clearly being un, un, badly served by script direction or something. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> again, uh, he he just becomes comic relief. He does. Um, yes, he's actually spluttering um, impotently in his car. Um, the other thing, alumni being the. I don't know, was he the PR guy at Edwards Air Force Base? Is Knowles in um, the thing? Um, the reporter mm. chap. Um, I, I don't know. Anyway, not that that matters, but they are very, they both play different characters here. It's nice to see someone being someone different. Th- that scene with LBJ is almost, but not quite a Bechdel test troubler. We <laughs> nearly had, a, we have named female characters talking to each other. Um, Sometimes they, they talk about the horribly dangerous planes that their husbands are flying, rather than their husbands. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, in this, in that scene, they're talking about um, how much they really wouldn't like uh, LBJ to come in and talk to the horribly shy. I, I do think he ta- he counts as a man. He does, in spite yeah, of what the film would like you to think. Uh, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, but regardless, they have to call John Glenn to sort it all out. In the oh, end on the positive side, I mean. This is a very male film, and we we have talked about several very male films. I mean, Jaws, The Thing, Raging yeah. Bull, Diner. Yeah. Um, and there's all the same posturing stuff that we've seen, but it does at least admit that women are people with their own feelings. Yeah, yes. all right, the only feeling they're allowed to express is, I am worried for my husband. <laughs> well, I suppose I felt, and I don't know if this is one of those influence things, it fell into the very cliched trap of the test pilots being outward jarheads, but inwardly uh, less confident and more cool. And that's, you know, it's a fairly classic story. You know, they try and look cool to their mates, but they are worried secretly. Mm. And the the women, uh, the the wives, and I should say pretty much exclusively wives in this film, that um, uh, they fall into the same cliche of being, oh, everyone tells you how to be a test pilot and no one tells you how to be a test pilot's wife, which is kind of the cliche for mm. that sort of character as well. I'm and not and this not is the, the usual military base problem, you know, you are stuck yeah. in the middle of nowhere, you have basically nothing to do except sit there and worry. Even by 90s, 50s standards of what military wives are allowed to do, you don't have much to do. Yes, so. yes. And, uh, you know, that's all true. I mean, I think that, that you know, those cliches exist for a reason, because a lot of a lot of test pilots were like that, and a lot of, te- not a lot of test pilots' wives were like that. But it didn't it didn't feel like it said any more than that. And that is a trope. Mm. I, I don't like to use the word trope too much, because it's, uh, it's a very common trope. Um, but uh, I, it felt like well-trodden ground to me. That said, I have watched a season of um, uh, The Right Stuff, and a lot of other things about that and read a lot about it. So it may be me that feels that as a well-trodden ground rather than yeah. the audiences of 1983. Well, that, that's the other thing. I mean, as we have seen, it was clearly acceptable for films about men, not really to mention women at all. So, you know, baby steps. Yes, exactly. So it's. I, I think it would be unfair to criticise this for being unfair to women considering all the other films we've seen <laughs> it's, it's uh, at least as fair if not fairer to women than the other films we've watched speaking of audiences in 1983 there weren't none for this film because they all hated mm. it um, the critics loved it um, or well no Pauline Kael oh, Pauline Kael check and she she loved it didn't she yeah um, 
yeah, she was a big fan of it. This this kind of epic historical. They they felt it was a great. I wonder, Roger, if we're a bit too close to this subject, and we know we are less tense because we know how John Glenn's flight turns out. Um, I was perhaps more tense. Well, that that may actually be a part of the problem because I I don't know how valid this is, but I've seen it suggested. Uh, in contemporary sources, John Glenn was running for the Senate at about the time the film came out, and there was a certain feeling that this was trying to, you know, tying in to promote him. Oh, and sort that, of that, that gave it a bit, of, a bit of bad press. I see, okay. Uh, it also had a limited release first because the Lad Company um, was basically running out of money. Uh, this and Twice Upon a Time, which you almost certainly haven't seen because nobody saw it. <laughs> Uh, I've heard the name. Were both comprehensive failures and basically destroyed the company. Oh, really? Well, well, then it is a wonder that this was um, had. I mean, that seems unfair to me because this is. Uh... Well, also, it's a three-hour film, and I don't think that helps. But we've, you know, we. Uh, you, you in, in, your... Sorry, in terms in terms of audiences at the time. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, 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 there's a thing I've heard about aliens a few years later than this, which is that a lot, a lot of the reasons for the cuts in the cinematic version was there is a particular regulation that said if a film was below a certain length, you could show it four times a day instead of three, oh. and therefore cinemas could make more money off it. And I wonder whether this might have run into that and just not had enough showings at the places it was showing. But, Still, it yeah. seems to have failed more comprehensively than that. I mean, it really was a it was a flop, wasn't it? Did it? It just about made more than it cost, but not very well, much. Well, it, it's hard to tell with Hollywood accounting. Yeah, right. Yes. Uh, I mean, the official budget is twenty seven million. The original, the official take is twenty one. On the other hand, uh, half of that goes to the cinemas. So right. Okay. So. Uh, so, I mean, it was a flop by pretty much any measure. And certainly, you know, it's interesting because when we talked about The Thing last uh, uh, last week, we uh, or whenever, whichever episode it was, um, that was kind of considered a flop and a failure. But actually, that did all right compared to that. It made about the same amount of money. Yeah, the, the, the Thing was also budget. hated by the critics. Yes, that's true. Uh, and I, I think this was... I, th- I think it started getting rehabilitated fairly quickly because the critics loved it. Right. So they do have a lot of influence. Um, yeah. And so um, certainly I remember when I, when I first heard about the film, I remember people speaking of it in a positive way, and this would only have been you know, three or four years later. Okay. So it has been pretty quickly reappraised and probably did all right on, on VHS, if they did VHSs that long. I remember having an E... E240. Uh, I don't um, believe it ever did get a VHS release. Goodness me. So, so well, may, that may have, been, may have been part of the thing, you know. Um, here is a film you can't see unless somebody rents a cinema. I mean, I, I suppose what I was saying it's unfair because I, I, I feel it is a well-made, perfectly watchable film. I just, I felt it was... For all Philip Kaufman is supposed to have had these strong convictions... I didn't really... All I got was a slightly confused about this hero worship of Chuck Yeager. Um, mm. Well, there, the there was another thing I got out of it, and it wasn't really followed up on especially, but, it met, but you know, we, we are talking artiness here and things don't have to be yeah, done, done in thick black marker. Uh, I, I was feeling, once we move on to the Mercury um, 
Cruise, the tension between being the best and being a 50s conformist. And Glenn, yeah, I'm thinking especially of that first big press conference scene where they're introduced to the public, yes, where, where yes. Glenn is clearly the master of appearing to be a regular 50s guy who is yeah. unthreatening and, you know, he's the one who's talking about, yeah, yeah, I go to church and all that stuff. And patriotic, yeah. And the, the, and he manages to shift gears from, I'm the best and you're all losers to, I, I am a, I am a good guy that you like. And he is, of course, the guy who gets the first orbital flight. So, you know, is, is that deliberate? I don't know, but I, that's certainly something I, I felt I was getting from it. I, th- I think it's under, but again, maybe I need, but I, I felt it was underplayed in that there was a lot more tension amongst the, Amongst the pilots, you know, they, it really did matter to them who was first mm. because they'd come from that culture of, you know, the, the be the best, and and because I th- at least in the Mercury they were all military pilots, um, yeah, which wasn't the case. I think it was the case up until a no in Gemini they, they started to allow. Well, they say civilian. They were pretty much all ex-military, at least at, at that point. But uh, that this culture, and it didn't. I thought it was going to play up more on that about it's really important who goes for. It did sort of leave a slight mystery who's going to be the first one. And, well, oh, it, it also Shepard. reduced the force of that uh, scene where um, Glenn is talking to his wife. Because, yeah, I mean, w- what what that scene is trying to say is. I am going to refuse to fly, and my buddies here are also going to refuse to fly if if you if you try to use that as leverage against her. And it doesn't quite come across because yeah, it doesn't he doesn't quite say the line, but yeah. that, that's meant to be the implication. And and if we had seen rivalry among them, I think that would have been more effective that they're all saying yes, this is a thing we all care about, and it's going to transcend this this personal rivalry stuff. Yes, yeah, and, and I think talking about this now, I feel this is why I have a slight... I think why Dull comes across in the film, because at every point it seems to choose, to me, the the, the kind of middle ground between extreme historical accuracy like Das Boots, um, which we loved, or the kind of melodrama that it could have really played up mm. um, with the astronauts, which I, I possibly would have disliked, but... Um, it might have been more interesting than this kind of... A, weird... a more soap opera sort of approach. I mean, yeah, yeah. has somebody done a TV series of astronauts' wives? If not, why not? It's such an obvious subject. I believe there might actually be a TV series of astronauts' wives. There's certainly... Oh, uh, there's one um, a counterfactual where Russia makes it to the moon first. Uh, I forget the name of it because I can't get it because it's on Apple TV. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, from from the earth to no from the earth to the means the Tom Hanks anyway produced it. anyway the, the, uh, I think there may well be one um, other than that but yeah you could have you know you could, maybe there's not room for it in a film but there's plenty of room in this film for more <laughs> um, you know you could have played up the the rivalry between the wives and the one upmanship if you wanted to go down that route yeah they um, they they have that one scene where um, Annie Glenn yes seems standoffish to the other wives and it's because of her whole stammer thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but they never the resolve that either. you see them, they're sort of all friends again yeah. and it's it's all been sorted out. Yeah, I, I feel there was drama to be wrung out of that and I did... Maybe the drama was supposed to be 
the actual flights themselves, but because I, maybe the problem is because I know the flights well and I knew who was going to be first, so it wasn't a surprise to me, and I knew who was going to be next. Um, it's short of getting angry at the way they treat. I know, I, I know Gus Grissom's flight was a bit controversial, and, I, and yes, he didn't get the ticker tape parade in the way that John Glenn did. Well, I don't know. Uh, that, making that the drama, what actually happened made mm. it less dramatic to me because I kind of knew all that. But then, you know, I'll watch stuff where I knew, I know the broad history and I still enjoy it. And that's me. I, I did enjoy the film. I, the, I thought, yeah. well, should we talk about the acting and the actors? We haven't really uh, well, talked I mean, about that. Yeah, ju- just, oh, okay, one, one more thing I want to take a dig at. Okay, okay. You're, you're making a film. You want to make it clear that this, this scene is happening in Australia. <laughs> oh my god, I'd forgotten the whole Australian. So you have a subtitle saying Australia, and you have a kangaroo, and you have people singing Waltzing Matilda, <laughs> and you have didgeridoo music. <laughs> oh my god. A- and yes. you have magical Aborigines. I'd <laughs> forgotten the magic Aborigine scene. Silly me. Yeah. That was, that was on the nose, as you might say, mate. <laughs> oh mate, we're in Australia, mate. The acting, I, I will admit that Although it is probably quite authentic, I do find when you have a bunch of men of basically the same age with basically the same hairstyle, they do kind of start to blend into each other, and it's <laughs> it's hard to tell them apart at first. Which is, you know, it's probably true to life, but it's kind of unfortunate. Ah, uh, yes, I was not struck by the acting in here, especially. I suppose I was struck by the fact that, uh, much like in Diner, many of these actors have then gone on and had distinguished careers as very good. You know, we have Ed Harris, Dennis Quaid. Um, mm-hmm. Sam Shepard, who was more of a playwright, who we may come on to in a later, um, <laughs> uh, in a later ribbon of memes. Um, uh, we had our man Lance Heinrichsen, um, who has almost nothing at all to do in this film. Yeah. W- Wally Shearer, um, interesting guy. Uh, he, he was one of the people who flight tested the uh, F7 Cutlass upgrade, the, the, the right. U3. And, Called it basically, yeah, it's a Widowmaker. It's fun to fly, but it's really twitchy. <laughs> right, okay. Um, and it, and that, that, that aircraft did in fact kill a lot of Navy, Navy pilots, so. Now, I don't think this statistic was in the film, but, um, I read it outside of the film. Was, was the death rate of the test pilots one in four, or am I? No, it, it's a little fiddly. Um, What's said is the whole thing about every time he went into a meeting, a one in four chance he wouldn't come back. That that's in the script in the, in the film. Yes. The okay. the actual death rate for test pilots was over fifty percent, but that was over a twenty year career of test piloting. Not every time they went up, so your odds of one at one individual flight are relatively low. But it's still compared to most careers a pretty extreme yeah. death rate. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Then that's that that does come across in the film. Um, Sorry, we've moved away from the actors here, um, many of which I've forgotten. <laughs> now thinking about, well, I was only, well, Ch- uh, Chuck Yeager is actually in this uh, as Fred the Barman. Oh yes, he is. Yes, yeah, looking less cool than Sam Shepard, uh, <laughs> much to Ch- Chuck Yeager's chagrin, I imagine. I mean, um, we, we Pancho Barnes was a really interesting person. Yes, who barely comes across. I mean, she 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 was doing flying circus stuff in the late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, she was a fascinating. So, and and the whole kind of history of the bar doesn't really. Uh, All of a sudden, uh, it's burning down. Yeah, and where you know, I think in reality there was some peculiar insurance <laughs> questions. No, about they, 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 that was a really weird situation. I don't know if this is in the book or not. 
Um, but basically she'd, she'd been running this place. Um, now she lived the, there and that they bought the Air Force around, the, the Air Force base around her. Well, the, the Air Force wanted to extend a runway. And so they right. said, right, we're going to eminent domain your land. Yes. And offered her the rate for unimproved land. And she said, well, no. And there was a certain amount of back and forth. And as a negotiating tactic, the Air Force essentially said, well, we don't have any proof, but we, but we think you're running prostitution out of here. And therefore we're making it off limits to base personnel. Oh, that's right. Thus yes, removing, you know, it. 90% of her income. Um, that did get resolved. Um, but during the closing bits of that resolution, it mysteriously caught fire. See, that's a fascinating story right there, isn't it? But no, we didn't <laughs> and, get And in the end, we... the Air Force never built the runway anyway. They, they, she, did, she did plan to open up again somewhere else, but I think by this time maybe she was just too tired. Yeah, but in the uh, but actually, all we get in the film is the the kind of the burnt down bar is this backdrop to days gone by. Well, you might as well have take my breath away playing in the background <laughs> while they're doing that. Scene. Her, her Sorry, grandfather, Thaddeus Lowe, yes, um, established the first American military air unit, the the Army I mean, of the I... Potomac's Balloon Corps. This whole thing is just. I, I don't know, ridden to me with fascinating stories, fascinating characters, like Chuck Yeager, who I also feel, despite the hero worship, doesn't, uh, he doesn't get the, he doesn't get the interest that would have made me, yeah, I, I mean, what, you know, that, that his, his test flight when he did have a broken rib, that, that more of that, please, you know, where he genuinely, mm. you know, fell over, broke his ribs, had, still broke the sound barrier, um, in intense pain, um, more of that stuff, please. I, more of that really interesting story. But instead, it, I I don't know. I felt it always took the blandest path possible, or the low the low hanging yeah. fruit. I mean, mate, I'm I'm just speculating here. I'm wondering whether um, Kaufman was starting with a basically hero worshipy idea that people held of of the astronauts yes. and felt he couldn't deviate too far from it, even though he really wanted to. I think yes, I I think you're right, and I think maybe we're judging it from a standpoint for us of not. I'm aware the astronauts were flawed characters, but I still find them fascinating heroic characters. Anyway, same as you know, Werner von Braun's history is really interesting if you want to dig into <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, same as you know, Chris Columbus, all, all the people involved in the space program had interesting history and interesting things to say from the engineers upwards. Uh, well, from the engineers downwards and upwards and sideways, and I just <laughs> felt um, mm, it 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 missed the interesting stories in favour of a point that it was trying to make that it I don't know then didn't, didn't really make. make very well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's my feeling of the film. I okay, so made. so you knew this was coming, Rogers Aviation Corner. Okay, uh, here we go. All right, I'll, I'll mean, get a drink. Obviously, the X one and X one A B twenty nine carrier aircraft. There, there are some weird exceptions. I mean, the the Douglas Skyrocket. That, that it's a, one of the planes that comes over while they're standing around chatting. I think it's at the barbecue scene, right? Okay. Played by an aircraft that is very obviously nothing like a Douglas Skyrocket. It's, it's a very distinctive silhouette. It's not that the Skyrocket's particularly distinctive, but a Hawker Hunter really is. Okay. Right. It, it's got those um, trapezoidal intakes that very few aircraft have ever had, and basically Hawker used them for about three aircraft in a series. And yeah, I right. Yes, I'm aware of the intakes. You mean yes? But um, the one that really 
startled me as this is just comprehensively and obviously wrong, and I grant I'm starting from a slightly non-standard place here, uh, is that, as you described it, the, the jet aircraft that Jaeger flies at the end, that it, it, it's shown as an F-104, F-104 yeah. Starfighter. Uh, it looked aircraft. very familiar to me from later military film. Yeah, and all, all they did to the standard model aircraft was, was take the tip tanks off the wings because the, the it's actually an NF-104A uh, prototype. They, they built three of them specifically for the high-altitude tests. Right. But the NF-104A has a rocket motor mounted to the root of the tail. It's very right. large and very obvious, and it is the reason that the aircraft was being used for any sort of high altitude trials because a regular 104 it's an interceptor it's it's pretty performative as you might say but performance well, that sounds that's like term. a very distinctive interesting thing yeah and he did he did historically fly it he did historically crash it but you're just showing this not only as the wrong aircraft but as an aircraft with a whole engine missing that was the entire reason for its existence and that well, just I, seems yeah. bizarre well, that again is he seems to have, uh, uh, Kaufman seems to have chosen, or Kaufman, um, seems to have chosen the, the kind of blandest possible route there. That would have been interesting to see him strapped upon this thing that most of us have never seen before with this very obvious, probably dangerous looking jet engine strapped to the bottom of it. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, didn't, didn't do that. They, they did make a lot of models and static mock-ups and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and given that I, I wonder whether maybe because the first draft of the script for, from Goldman was just concentrating on the Mercuries, maybe they, you know, slipped that off a bit and didn't, didn't have a lot of time or resource by the time they added that scene back in. I don't know. Yeah, but, well, it's interesting. We, you know, I've referenced the TV show a few times. Jaeger is not in that at all. He's completely excised from it. Philip Kaufman <laughs> hated it. Well, so he's just not mentioned in it. Uh, I, I enjoyed the TV. I did honestly find that perhaps a bit slow and dull too. And that's probably why it's been cancelled. But this felt like, ah, even blander and, and duller than that. Right. Tell me more about the aviation corner. Sorry. I've gone back in. Well, that, that's most of it. I mean, there, there are some okay. blatant errors. Um, where, when you've got Shepard landing on the uh, Coral Sea, there are A7s parked on the deck, and they wouldn't fly until 1965. And they, they again, kind of have it, can... if you know the aircraft of the era, they have quite a distinctive shape. Okay. Uh, it's that, that double chin intake. Um, maybe they're supposed to be F8s, but, you know, they don't look like them. Th- that, that, I will admit, is a quick... <coughs> yeah. It seems a shame they couldn't get the right aircraft, but, you know, there are all sorts of practical reasons why they might not have been able to. It, it, the, the one that really throws me is that F-104, because well, that, that agree, actually I mean, has an effect on the film. Well, yeah, and as a non-aviation interview, you could see that would add drama and tension when you're on this thing that doesn't, that looks peculiar, then that would add more tension to the, the mm. whole scene. Um, to, be, to be fair, I think for most of the rockets, they used um, real-world footage, so, you know, fair enough. But it didn't look, I mean, it didn't look so incongruous. It looks, I suppose maybe that's because we, uh, at least me and you, are used to seeing that kind of footage of rockets. So when mm. you see it, you think, oh, this is realistic. Um, as opposed to the kind of CGI Apollo 13 <laughs> version, um, uh, which looks alright too. Um, okay. I mean, did you enjoy the film, Roger? 
dear. Oh, dear. I enjoyed bits of it. I, I did yeah. find myself thinking, you know, if I were a, a sort of vaguely competent film editor, I bet I could make a 90-minute cut of this that would be more fun. Yeah. I'm not saying it would be a better film, but I think it would be more enjoyable. I think that's it, really. I, I'm not asking for a historical testament to it. This clearly wasn't. But uh, the kind of length it was, it kind of suggested that it might be. But actually, it's uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's slickly made. It's it's nicely activated by activated nicely acted by nice young white men for the most part. And I, <laughs> you know, that is the that's the history of the space where I don't you can't yeah. fault them for that. Um, but it never quite touches any of the touchstones that I would want it to. And and um, yeah, I, I think the biggest sin it commits is exactly what you said, that it's a subject we're both fascinated with. Um, or it could have taught me a lot about Chuck Yeager and I could have become fascinated with Test Pilots. Mm. I wasn't really. I just was... I often was checking how far am I through this film? Um, and that's not a great sign of the film. Yeah, I mean, this this is where I started. I think, how long... Okay, I've, I've I've got to got to the end of this bit, and I'm I'm thirty percent of the way through the film. Wow, how's this? How's this happening? <laughs> and it lingers a long time on Jaeger before it gets near Mercury, but still, they have a good. Uh, anyway, let's not dump on it to it. It is. It's it's a masterpiece. Anyway, it is. Yes, I think it is because it it did. It, it's certainly influential in a number of different ways. One. You know, directly Top Gun and many films like it, um, to the kind of historical epic which we haven't seen, I guess, since the days of the biblical epics, really. Um, mm. You know, this kind of, but the, this kind of making history, humanizing history and making it interesting on a personal human level, which we've seen a lot of times now with the. With Titanic and the execrable Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of that because I, th- this is, this is a me thing rather than the film is a bad one thing. Mm. I, I find the people are already sufficiently human because they are taking these huge risks or, or, yeah. you know, trying to, you know, I, d- I don't need to see the little girl sobbing over her dog to realize that these people are scared. No, I, I mean, to me, the reason I love history is because basically history is all the best stories that ever happened, and they're the ones that everyone remembers. And you dig into history and you find ones that people didn't know about. And so, mm. yeah, I don't need uh, a half-assed love story on a ship that sinks and a thousand people die to tell me that that was, yeah. you know, that was a dramatic moment. Um, so, I did like Titanic. I'm uh, saying, but... Loved by the critics, as, as we said. Um, mm. I, didn't get much of a nod at the Oscars, possibly because of the financial failure. Uh, it got a nomination for, uh, I'm oh, sorry, it, it, got, it, got, it won a joint one best original score. I'm not sure about nominations. Score? I don't even remember the score, which is probably a good sign. Uh, it did get a bunch of, oh no, it, it got, it got a bunch of the technicals. Okay. That's, that's, well, that's the, fair. I that's just... the standard thing of, we we accept that this is a good film, but it hasn't made money, so we're not going to give it the promotion of a best actor. Um, well, I think Sam Shepard did get a nom for best supporting actor, and and it got now, a best, and it got a best picture nomination. But Sam Shepard was many things. I don't think he was a phenomenal actor in this film. He could he, look stoic and unshaven. 
He does look. He does look good. I mean, I I, I agree. <laughs> he looks like a Top Gun type pilot, uh, largely because they pinched that off the, that image off him. He looks like he's supposed to, and he's laconic as he needs to be. I don't know that he does a phenomenal job acting in it. Bless him. <clears throat> not. I mean, I'm not saying I could do any more, but no one paid me. Well, the role doesn't call for him to do a phenomenal job in acting. No, no, I, he does exactly what he's supposed to do. And as as we were saying with Donald Moffat, you know, whether he can do better elsewhere or not affects whether it's the actor or the director or the script that's yes, yeah, doing him a disservice here. And Sam Shepard did a lot of other. Um, more cerebral jobs than he did here. <laughs> anyway, there we go. Um, so we agree it was a masterpiece. Uh, it wasn't. I mean, for me, our most. Uh, I, I think this this has become. Diner. Yeah, this, this has become. I think the the stock. If you are a lazy screenwriter and you want to show pilots, this is the film you use for reference. Yeah, I think maybe that's it. Maybe this. Uh, we we didn't. We went through a lot of films with it. I I went into. I mean, th- th- think um, think the pilots and aliens. Yeah, yeah. Who are clearly are. from here as well as other places. Yeah, they, they did so massively influential in it set up this whole stereotype. Um, and maybe that suffers a bit that to us it's not a new stereotype. Yeah, yeah. perhaps so. But the best films we've seen didn't do that, or at least did something interesting with it that other films failed to do. Here, they're so easily imitatable that they've been perfectly imitated elsewhere. And mm. so, you know, I, I, to me, maybe maybe you could have got a bit higher if it's that easy to imitate. But... Yeah, well, we, we've, we've talked before about the problem of seeing the thing that, that originated a trend when we yes. have seen the trend refined and done better. Yeah, whereas, you know, to me, a real true masterpiece would be something that is very hard to imitate. Yeah. But that is perhaps a bit of a, bit of a harsh judgment because there's not many films like that. So this is a film I would recommend with caution, I think. Yeah. yeah. There there are things that could have spoiled it for someone who was some some of them spoiled it for me some a bit um, if if you're going to be but the astronauts weren't like that then it is you're just going to be gnashing your teeth the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) That said great flying footage and you know, some something more than just here are these guys, and they they stuck yeah. they stuck them in tin cans and, and shot them into orbit. And it didn't go for you know the the money shot of oh, and they ended up landing on the moon. You know, it finishes before that, and I respect it for that. You know, that is an easy, proud, pleasing thing. After which, everyone, unfortunately, even me, after Apollo eleven, you slightly lose interest in the space. I try mm. not to, but it is so. Yeah, uh, it. It's got a lot going for it, and perhaps yeah. we were not the right audience for it. Um, but as far uh, as we can see, audiences in '83 weren't the right audience for it well, either. So. That's exactly. You have to slightly wonder who was it for then. It seemed to be of the critics of nineteen for the critics of nineteen eighty three. Yeah, but it's a lot of the criticism of the TV series, which I know I've mentioned a lot now, was that it wasn't the film. But uh, fair mm. enough. I don't know. It certainly plays up the soap and the melodrama aspect. Consequently, I enjoyed it a bit more than the film. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So anyway, there we 1983 go. at the box office. Oh, yes, let's have it. Uh, obviously, this film is not there in the top ten. Uh, so, number ten, Risky Business, sex Ooh, comedy. first Tom Cruise. Or very Tom Cruise, Rocco de Mornay, yeah. I don't think it was his... Yeah, it was certainly early in his career. 
very a, a young maverick to be. Uh, number nine, Mr. Mom. Uh, that was Michael Keaton's first lead role. Mr. Mom. It's it's me. another comedy. Yeah, I I remember the name. I don't think I've ever been troubled enough to watch it. Uh, at number eight, we have Staying Alive, sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Oh, directed well, by I Stallone, did... who also co-produced and co-wrote. What, Sylvester Stallone? Yep. Wow. All right. Was not aware of that. <laughs> uh, number seven, uh, Sudden Impact. Uh, Dirty oh, Harry, yes. number four. Dirty Harry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all right, I suppose. <laughs> uh, number six, Octopussy, uh, James Bond oh, film. The one where Maud Adams actually get, gets to do something. Yes, um, yeah, but also incredibly racist. But, but there we go. Uh, number five, War Games, which I, I kind of like. Oh, yeah. I, I have some. It's not perfect. It does have the immortal line, hell, right now I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought it would do any good. That's another. Th- this may, may have been just a thing I did, but uh, since getting to a cinema was a fairly rare thing, and the local cinema had a tiny fraction of what was available. Uh, that this was one that I, I read the book of well before I saw the film, and I think I'm I'm kinder to the film than it really deserves because I remember the images I got from the book. I I think it's a better film, perhaps. Maybe we should revisit. It. I I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece, but I think maybe it's better than we remember yeah. it being. I I remember it being well at the time. I remember it being great. Well, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it it feels like one of those films. That you enjoyed at the time and is probably crap, but I think it's probably better mm. than we give it credit for. Uh, so, number four, Trading Places. Uh, oh, I comedy? love Trading Places. Yeah. It's one of my favourite films ever. So I'm and not saying it's a masterpiece. Improved As Everything Is by J.B. Lee Curtis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, number uh, three. Eddie Murphy when he was firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Oh. And, of course, um, Denim Elliott. Mm. Uh, very good. Oh, I love it. Uh, number three, Flashdance. Romantic drama dance film, Flashdance. I guess. No, same here. Uh, I like the song. <laughs> uh, number two, Terms of Endearment, which we've been carefully not mentioning, I think. Uh, oh, yeah, that's not there. Oh, I haven't, haven't seen it. Don't, don't particularly want to. Yeah, and uh, number one, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, we, we are. We have what got to the end of the trilogy. <laughs> Yes, there'll be there'll be no more Star Wars ever. For <laughs> well, you may you may wish though. Mandalorian's all right, I suppose. I've seen westerns before. <laughs> Fair point, <laughs> but do they have a baby Yoda in? Oh, spoiler! Sorry. Um, <laughs> very good. Well, there we are. Um, yeah, I mean, not a film I'd love, but definitely a film that has things to say to me even now. Yeah, yeah, I was, I, I enjoyed it as it washed over me. I think we don't need to, <laughs> don't need to finish. but it didn't, it didn't tell me anything new or desperately interesting. But on the other hand, enough, we we are both space geeks, so we are space geeks. So again, as you say, maybe not the right. Oh, I can't think of a traditional ending for this podcast. I'm afraid um, that shows you how engaged I was with the film. <laughs> um, I suppose we should just gaze off. They say there's a demon that lived in the air. (laughs) That's the one. There we go. Well, let's go and let's go and punch a hole in the podcast. (laughs) 